0: As Kyleen mentioned earlier, today's format is going to look uh, slightly different uh, than a typical Sunday here at Bayside. We're going to lift our voice in song throughout the service, interspersed uh, throughout sections of scripture and preaching. And so for any kids that are waiting to go upstairs, uh, I'll let you know when you can do that. It will be after the next song, and we'll remind you when that's time. But why are we doing things a little bit different today? See, as I was studying uh, this week's passage, the last three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, I couldn't help but respond in a worship to the little ancient hymn that's hidden right there in verse 16. See, and since most of our focus will be studying this old song that they sang in the earliest church days, what better way to enter into This passage and to experience this passage, then with lots of praise and singing. Now, let's remember a few things before we jump into our text this morning. Again, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. So, a little bit of background, just as a reminder Timothy was uh, a young protege of the Apostle Paul. Um, He was Paul's apprentice. Uh, They've known each other for a long time, they've worked together for many years. Um, but the church in Ephesus was dealing with some uh, pretty hard realities. They were dealing with some false teachers who were coming in and distorting truth and, and twisting the gospel. So Paul reminds Timothy to keep focused on the gospel. That was the big part of uh, what he said to him in the first chapter, First Timothy. Uh, one, he says, keep focused on the gospel. And then he reminds his young friend to always be in prayer. Be in prayer for the president, the kings, all those in authority, and be in prayer for the unsaved. Then, Paul even goes to lay out some principles about how a church should be structured, what a church is supposed to look like, how, how it's supposed to operate. And it's most, quite simply, it's the saints are the humble servants with godly qualified men leading the way as elders and godly qualified men and women serving the saints as deacons that's kind of the structure and everything all the theology he's laid out for us so far and now here near the end of the third chapter we arrive at the theme verse that frames the entire letter because paul's going to tell us exactly the reason he's writing. So let's look at our text for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. <laughs> Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, "I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness." He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So in these three verses, Paul essentially lays out for Timothy three necessary actions for living a godly, Christ-centered life. The first one, the first action that enables us to live a Christ-centered life is simply this to behold the beauty of the church. Behold the beauty of the church. Look around you. Soak it in. Behold the beauty of the church. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is hoping that he's going to get the opportunity to visit Timothy again in Ephesus, but he realizes that might not be a possibility. After all, what's really important for Paul is that Timothy knows how Christians should conduct themselves in the church, right? It's the church's code of conduct, the house rules. He's saying here that this household of God is run by certain principles. Now, he doesn't get into the specifics of what that conduct looks like. Uh, He'll do that elsewhere in Timothy. Uh, Instead, Paul starts by talking about the nature of the church, the nature of the church, because a proper understanding of the church is so important for proper living. If you don't properly understand the role the church plays in your spiritual development, you're missing out. So the first thing Paul says about the church is that the church is the family of God. The phrase household of God that he writes there, it's actually a metaphor for family. The church is the family of God. He's the father, and we, are as the saints, we're his children. That makes each one of us, if you're a believer in Christ, brothers and sisters. What's even crazier, though, is that death itself won't end our relationship to one another. We're brothers and sisters from now on, into eternity. Now, I know what you're thinking. The person that you love you're sitting next to, you're like, yes, I get to be with them in eternity. But then you're thinking, oh, wait, that person's going to be there too? (laughs) So let's start to see one another as God intended. Yes, we're going to have those obnoxious younger brothers. We're going to have those obnoxious and annoying conspiracy theorist older brothers. We'll have those annoying little sisters and those complaining, grumbling older sisters, but we're brothers and sisters nevertheless. And one day, we will be fully redeemed brothers and sisters, and we won't get on each other's nerves. So next time you sing, realize you're singing with your eternal brothers and sisters when you behold the beauty of the church. Now, Paul also identifies the church another way. He calls it the church of the living God. See, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, what sets us apart from every other human assembly that's happening during these moments across the world, whether it's a temple, any, any of those, anywhere where there's a, an assembly of people meeting where The gospel isn't being preached and Jesus isn't at center. That's not a church. That might be a gathering of people, but that's not a church. See, what sets us apart from every other human gathering is the simple reality that we worship the living God. Notice that phrase there, the living God. See, the church is the corporate, uh, corporate body of Christ followers, and it's the place where God lives and dwells and manifests his presence. But you see, what really makes church so special, what makes it fully alive is the reality that the church is comprised of people who are indwelt by the living Jesus Christ. Because Jesus indwells every single believer, he's present. He's actively, he's actually present when his people gather. It doesn't matter where we gather. It doesn't have to be within the walls of this church. It could be out there. It's wherever we gather is where the church is. The church isn't the walls. It's wherever the people are. Right? The people are the church. And when we gather, we are the church. Now, this is such an incredible thought because so often we hear uh, the church talk down about because of whatever scandals or um, moral failures are happening uh, across the board. But regardless, this was God's plan A for redeeming humanity. There's no plan B. He's going to do it through the church until he returns. So, and this really is so incredible when you think about it, because if you're one who wants to find the living God in the world today, you, know, you can't go to the lecture halls of the best universities. You can't go to the chambers of Congress. You can't go to the mansions of Hollywood to find the living expression of God in the world today. Look to the unassuming and ordinary gathering of Christian believers in a local church on a Sunday morning like this. This means that while listening to the word of God alone in your living room or in your car is a good thing, listening, hearing the word of God when you're gathered with the saints is an even better thing, right? It means that while singing to God alone from your home or from your car, while that's a good thing, singing to God together in the presence of one another is a better thing. When we gather, when we're skin to skin, when we're face to face with brothers and sisters in whom God also dwells, our singing and our hearing is magnified and intensified. And this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that watching church online is not an actual substitute for church. It serves its purposes. It's great for people who physically can't get out or people who are sick or, or maybe you're traveling for work, but it can also Online church can also become an easy crutch for lazy Christianity. We want you here. We want you to prioritize bringing your family to church on Sunday. Right, you're not going to tell little Johnny's football coach that, oh, he's got practice next week, but, uh, oh, you know what? He, he, he'll be there, but he's just going to practice from home. That wouldn't work. But that's the way we approach church. We are the family of God indwelt by the living Christ. And when we sing, we sing as a family. The third thing, then, that Paul says about the church is that we are the pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, what Paul is saying at is the church is the storehouse of the truth. The believing gospel-centered church is the guardian of the truth and the communicator of the gospel to the rest of the world. See, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, as Timothy's reading this, remember Timothy's in Ephesus, as he's reading this, his mind immediately went to the pagan temple um, of Artemis or, or Diana that was in Ephesus at that time. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this huge, uh, massive pagan temple that had this huge marble roof that was held high by uh, 60-foot columns. And these 60-foot columns, uh, there were a 100 of them total. So as Paul's saying, hey, this, the church, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. In, In Timothy's mind, he's imagining that temple and how the, that temple, though magnificent in everything on the outside, how it pales in comparison to the living church, the true church. Paul's saying as magnificent and strong as that temple might be, those pillars don't contain the truth of the gospel. It's the church's pillars that contain the truth of the gospel. So the church is the family of God indwelt by the living Christ who guards the gospel truth. That's a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. Does this incredible reality bring you any joy this morning? Just a couple of you? Does this bring you joy? I'm trying to get you to the point where... I could say there's joy in the house of the Lord so we could sing it real loud. That's what we're going to do. Let's stand up and sing that. So Paul, after encouraging us to behold the beauty of the church, he goes on to another necessary action for living a godly, Christ-centered life. The second one, the second action that enables us to live a Christ-centered life is this. Sing the wonders of Of the Savior, exactly what we're doing today. Sing the wonders of the Savior. See when we gather, not only do we hear the Word of God preached, but we also respond to the Word through song, through singing with our voices, and that's essentially what Paul does in verse sixteen. He places this beautiful hymn here about the supremacy of Christ, and and, in order to elicit from us a worshipful response to the gospel. Look again at verse sixteen. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory central to everything the church does, central to who the church is and who Christians are and what Christians do, central to all of that is the person and work of Christ. And this little hymn celebrates the supremacy of Jesus. He refers here to Christ's uh, supremacy in relation to this little phrase that he uses called the mystery of godliness. Now, when Paul talks about about a mystery, he's not talking about uh, something hidden or concealed or mysterious that has yet to be unveiled or, or revealed or known. He's simply talking about something that was hidden in the past, but it's not hidden any longer. So it's no longer hidden. And the word godliness says the mystery of godliness. That word godliness is one of uh, Paul's favorite words in this letter. Uh, he uses it nine times throughout 1 Timothy. Now, godliness simply means to be like God, God God-likeness. It's to have a Christ-centeredness that informs our thinking, that informs our speech, that informs our actions, that informs everything we do. And I love how Paul links what he just talked about, right? He just talked about conduct in the church, and he links that to the person and work of Christ. Right? Because apart from the living Jesus inhabiting and indwelling his children, godliness is impossible. Godliness is impossible apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus empowering us and energizing us to live godly lives, the Christian life is impossible. I love the way Ian Thomas put it in his little book called The Mystery of Godliness. He said, godliness is the direct and exclusive consequence of God's activity in his children. Godliness is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God, but godliness is the result of God's capacity to imitate himself in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So understand the mystery of godliness as the sacrificial work of Jesus on behalf of the sinner and the mystery of godliness also as the resurrection power of Jesus on behalf of the saint. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Now that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, it speaks to his incarnation. It means he was God incarnate, God made flesh, the eternal Son of God added to his fully divine nature, a fully human nature, by being born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. Now, why did Jesus have to become a man? Now, there are several reasons, but one reason relevant to what we're talking about today is because we needed somebody to live the life that we couldn't live. We needed somebody to live that sinless, perfect life that nobody else was capable of. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Galatians 4 says it this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. See, Jesus lived the sinless life we can never live, and he died the sinner's death that we all deserve to die. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5: says, For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for your sake, for my sake, God took his one son, Jesus, the only one who knew no sin, and charged him with our sin. He charged him with our guilt so that by faith in Christ, our forgiveness would be secure and that our old life would be exchanged with the righteous life of Christ. Jesus lived the sinless life we can never live. He died the sinner's death that we deserved to die. And another wonder that should cause us to sing is the reality that Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose in victory over our greatest enemies. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So not only was Jesus manifested in the flesh, he was also vindicated by the Spirit. That Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit means that the resurrection of Jesus proves once and for all that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. The Son of God who came to the world to take away the sins of the world. And understand that the resurrection was that decisive act in human history that proved wrong all of his doubters, proved wrong all the people who scoffed at him, all the religious elites, all the political leaders, all the Roman executioners, all the pagan onlookers, and all the casual observers. Every single one of them was proved wrong, and Jesus was vindicated. Romans 1, 4 puts it this way. It says, Jesus was declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. So in his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated, Jesus was justified, and Jesus was verified to be the son of the living God who is powerful enough to defeat the enemies of sin and death. As Hebrews 2 puts it, Jesus himself took on flesh and blood, that through his death, he would destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death, and that through his death, Jesus would deliver those who were enslaved to sin and destined for hell. So, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus lived the sinless life we can never live. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus died the sinner's death that we all deserve to die. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus rose in victory over our greatest enemies of sin and death. So, let's stand and sing of the wonders of our Savior, our Lord, our King of Kings. So, just a quick disclaimer. One of the other benefits of actually being in church in person is that we get to hear each other sing. Um, Now, some of you are, I know, so many of you are thinking like, oh, that you don't want to hear me sing. Um, I can't answer that, but I could tell you God wants to hear you sing. It's going to be a sweet sound to him, so no matter how it sounds, it'll be sweet to us also. And that brings me so much joy. So if you ever, if like we've ever made eye contact when I've been worshiping or whatever, I don't want you to like think I'm a creeper. <laughs> really, because this is, this is basically what, what happens. This is why I stand right here. <laughs> <Hi babe. laughs> kind of stand right here. You know, I could face everybody this way, but I usually stand like this and look and just have a big smile on my face because nothing brings me so much joy than to hear God's people in unison lifting up the praises of the Savior. So again, if I make eye contact with you, smile. I'm not being creepy, I promise. (laughs) So Paul has encouraged us to behold the beauty of the church and to sing the wonders of the Savior. Then we learn of a third necessary action for living a godly, Christ-centered life. The third action that encourages us to live a Christ-centered life is to proclaim the gospel to all people. Proclaim the gospel to all people. He writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now here, when Paul says he was seen by the angels, he's likely referring to Jesus' ascension back into heaven and the wonderful reception he would have received from the angels. After all, he was oftentimes surrounded by angels. Angels accompanied him uh, and, and surrounded him in his birth announcement. They uh, sang at his birth. They ministered to him in the wilderness after his trials and temptations. The angel, angels announced his resurrection. They witnessed his ascension. They strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus passed by the holy angels twice. See, the first time was when he descended far below them in his incarnation And the second time was when he soared far above them in his exaltation. And this marvelous gospel not only astounds angels, because it does. Scripture says angels are, 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 they, they marvel at the gospel. They don't completely understand it. But this doesn't only astound the angels, because it should astound us, because it's the one single reality in life that can save sinners which is why Jesus must be proclaimed among the nations. As Paul says there, he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. So beginning with the earliest disciples and continuing until this very day, Jesus has been preached among people of all different tribes, all different races, all different languages, all different nations. So why must the gospel of Jesus be preached? So it can be believed, so people can get saved, He says they're proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. I love the way he puts it in Romans 10. He says, but how can people call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. See, is the gospel is preached throughout the world. People throughout the world are saved by God's grace through belief, through faith. So may we be a people who preach the gospel to our friends, to our family members, to our coworkers, to our bosses, even to our enemies. Let us preach the gospel with our words, but not words only. You know, there's that phrase I've, I've heard that says, um, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Eh. You have to. If you're preaching the gospel, you have to use words, um, but not just words. You preach the gospel with your life also, and you better believe that those words are going to carry a lot more weight when it matches with your life. So we preach the gospel with our words, but also with our lives. May our lives be so energized by Jesus that when people talk to us, it's like they're talking to Jesus. When people interact with us, it's like they're interacting with Jesus. When people see how we live, it's like they're seeing what Jesus would look like and would live like. May they see the mystery of godliness revealed in our lives that Jesus Christ lives in me. I love the way Galatians 2 puts it. He says, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, and we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be made right with God because of our faith, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And this final little note. Taken up in glory. See, this majestic hymn ends on a note of victory and triumph. It closes by reminding us that Jesus was taken up in glory. The gentle and spotless lamb is also the powerful and mighty Lord and Savior. He's the king of the universe who reigns at the Father's right hand. He's seated in heaven right now. But one day, he will stand up. And when he stands up, the whole world is going to know. Because that's when Jesus will return in power and glory. That's when he'll return in power and glory. To once and for all do away with all sin, all sickness, all worry, all anxiety, all depression, all fear, all rejection, all abuse, all of it will be gone. But church, until that glorious day comes, and what a glorious day that will be, may we be a people who depend on Christ for all of life. May we worship him not only with our voices but with our very lives because what this passage leaves us with is the reminder that the catalyst for a Christ-centered life is worship centered on Christ. The catalyst for a Christ-centered life is worship centered on Christ. So look around and behold the beauty of the church. The thing, that church, that entity that continues to get mocked and ridiculed and made fun of, is actually the very beautiful thing through which God is going to accomplish his purposes on earth. He's got no plan B. His plan A is the church, and he knows what he's doing. See the church as the beautiful family of God. It's the family. We want to see you in person. We want to connect with you, embrace you. see the church also as the precious dwelling place of Christ, where Jesus exercises his godliness in us and through us, and see the church as the beautiful storehouse of truth, remembering that the message of the gospel is the most truthful, most important message that needs to reach the ears of every single person that has breath on this planet, So look around and behold the beauty of the church. Then look up and sing the wonders of the Savior. Sing the wonders that the eternal creator of everything visible, everything invisible, became a man to live a sinless life that we can never live. Sing the wonders that this Jesus died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. Sing about the wonder that Jesus has given us his very own life as a result of his resurrection and proclaim the truth that the gospel provides salvation to all who believe. So sing with joy all of these things. The catalyst for a Christ-centered life is worship that is centered on Christ. So let's close with one final song as we rehearse the gospel one last time before we leave for the week and until we meet again as a family next week.